everybody. Welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm horse bean connoisseur Mike Emmel, and I'm very excited to welcome back my co-host to this episode. He is the host of the wonderful podcast, Classic Movie Must. He's the host of some of our episodes, including Strangers on a Train, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And he's the man who has the audacity to come to this recording dressed entirely in red, Max Burrell. Max, welcome back, and uh, how dare you? Um, you know, we can't just keep living in the medieval times. What do you want me to tell you? Uh, Mike, it is an absolute pleasure to be back with you. And I'm just kind of giggling to myself when you list the films we've discussed, when it's things like Strangers on a Train, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Both Ace Ventura films. It's, it is an excellent sweep, and I'm always very excited to throw that into the intro for you. Max, it is great to have you back to add. Um, we'll see which camp tonight's film is going to go to, if it's more the Strangers on a Train or more the Ace Ventura side. But uh, how you been? How's Classic Movie Must? Well, I'm, uh, I'm doing great. I'm certainly excited to talk about this film with you. Classic Movie Must is good. Listeners of the show, if we have any crossover, will hopefully know that Classic Movie Must uh, just returned to free podcast feeds. So you can start listening to new episodes of that show. Uh, anywhere that you prefer to get your podcasts. It is really, really good to have them back in the feeds. Um, you are running a very special run um, that informs this episode. I wondered if you could plug that and we could kind of roll that right into what we're talking about on Cinemas tonight. Absolutely. So since the beginning of this year, uh, my co-host uh, Ted Walsh and I have been doing monthly episodes on William Wyler's filmography we are having an absolute blast digging into the depth of a truly, while celebrated, still underrated filmmaker. And uh, so the new episodes of those are coming out on a monthly basis. But because the show also just is returning to free podcast feeds, I'm kind of dumping all of the episodes we've done since the beginning of the year. So if anyone hasn't been listening to those since the year started, you can kind of catch up on all of these William Wyler episodes right now uh, on Classic Movie Musts on any podcast service. And you mentioned you don't know how much crossover our two shows have. I would hope anybody that's following us is also following you. But in case they're not, where can people find Classic Movie Musts podcast feed-wise or social media? So on any, any podcast service, you can search Classic Movie Musts, including Spotify. You can find me on Twitter at Movie Musts Pod. You can always email me at ClassicMovieMusts at gmail.com. And to plug, I'm all over the place, but I got to plug the the Weiler with Walsh uh, series right now is fantastic. I'm admittedly, I wasn't the biggest Weiler fan before I started listening. And I have, I'm not totally caught up with you guys, but I have caught up with some hidden gems of his. And one I'm going to call out that you guys specifically introduced me to, The Little Foxes. Holy cow, that is a fantastic movie. And I never would have found it without your guys' Uh, Weiler on or Walsh on Weiler run. So you're doing good work over there. Uh, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear it. I have such love in my heart for the little foxes. It's probably a topic will that will come up a little bit later in today's conversation, just because of the parallels with today's movie. But William Weiler, I was a big fan of his going into this series, but doing this series has just elevated my esteem for this director to really the highest level. And so I hope that uh, that listeners will go check it out because he's really a director worth celebrating. 
Well, with that, why don't we talk a little bit about it? Because it may inform what we are talking about tonight. So before we get into that, let's do our housekeeping and welcome back. Of course, you, Max, but everybody else who's listening, welcome to you guys. We are really glad to have you here because the challenge we issue you today as ladies and gentlemen is to help us decide which films truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. And to determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on that list, we're going to leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we're going to be putting on our various social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can find us on any of them just by searching for Cinemas. There is where you're going to cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. And while you all make sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown of how you will cast your vote on tonight's film. Each movie we talk about on Cinemus is voted into one of three tiers. At the top is our namesake, the Cinemusts. These are movies you recommend absolutely everybody see at least once during their lifetime. They are essential. In the middle tier are the Cinetrusts. These are movies that uh, might be very good, but you only recommend them to some people, not everybody. And in the bottom tier are the Cinebusts. These are movies that, for whatever reason, even if they're okay movies, you don't recommend them to anybody. There's just better ways to spend your time. So the fate of tonight's movie is going to be in your hands. You will vote it into one of those three categories after Max and I Max and I do a little modeling and have a discussion on it, um, which I turn it over to you, Max. I had asked you when you wanted to come back on if there were any underrepresented directors uh, on cinemas you wanted to tackle. And you said, uh, I noticed William Wyler here on the list and funny you should mention his name because we're doing a little something with him on Classic Movie Musts. So taking that and running with it, what movie did you decide to bring to Cinemus today? We are going to be discussing Jezebel. Great title. It really is. So this one sounds like may not make it onto the Weiler with Walsh series on Classic Movie Musts for a while. So we are getting the exclusive. I feel very special. So thank you for bringing it to us. I'm going to treasure this. Let's get going into it. So for anybody who who is new to the show, uh, for a couple of minutes here, Max and I are going to be totally spoiler free. We're going to be talking about Jezebel, uh, giving you a little plot summary. We're going to vote it into one of those three categories I explained. And each of us has to give three reasons apiece for why we vote it into the category we do. So stick with us for a couple minutes, even if you haven't seen the movie. We hopefully will be able to give you a good idea on if it's something you want to check out. We'll even tell you where you can find it if it does interest you. Um, so I will kick us off with giving just a real brief plot summary of what Jezebel is about. Jezebel is, a, as we've mentioned, a William Wyler movie from 1938. It follows Julie Marsden, who's played by an Academy Award winning Betty Davis. She is a headstrong Southern belle who is engaged to Press Dillard, played by Henry Fonda. He is an up-and-coming young banker in 1852 New Orleans. Um, Julie, basically, Julie's headstrong and petulant nature causes her to lose the man she loves because she doesn't fit into normal societal norms. So she is going to undertake, she will lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to win her man back. Does it sound familiar? Maybe, maybe we'll talk about that a little later, but that is the basic rundown of Jezebel. Max, I am really curious. You guys, like I mentioned, there's a lot of Weiler movies you've been covering that I normally would not have paid much credence to, but the fantastic discussions you've been having on Classic Movie Must have really made me look closer at Weiler's work. So, Jezebel, what are you going to vote it? (sighs) Mike, I've been going back and forth with myself on this film. 
And uh, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to just have to make a flip of the coin here because I think this film could easily be considered a sin and must, right? It's the first pairing of Betty Davis and William Wyler, a pairing that left an indelible mark on classic Hollywood filmmaking. As you said, Betty Davis won the Academy Award for her performance in this film, rightfully so. It's a wonderful performance. But then if I'm looking at, you know, someone who perhaps hasn't seen this film is perhaps on the fence and you say, well, if you really wanted to point them in the direction of a truly top tier Betty Davis movie, is this the film you would pick? I'm not sure I would. And even if you were going to say, well, if you wanted to pick someone in the top tier of a William Wyler movie, I would say, well, there's probably better William Wylers out there. And there's even better Wyler Betty Davis combos. So with all of that, you, you could say, well, maybe it's a cine trust. Maybe it's for a little bit more of the connoisseur who wants to get a little deeper into that filmography. So it's tough. I'm going to say cine trust just because I think there are other movies I would recommend first for someone. But do I think this movie stands up to being a cine must? Am I going to be disappointed if the, if the viewers or the listeners voted a cine must? No way. Excellent. I like it. Um, to make it official, I ask you to give three reasons for whichever way you vote the movie. So three reasons why this is not quite essential, but still uh, something worth checking out to the connoisseurs, as you say. What are your three main reasons why? Well, I'm going to keep it short and to the point here. It's going to seem a little obvious, but boy, are we going to get into it as the episode goes on. But my first reason is Betty Davis. My second reason is William Wyler. We're going to get into that. My third reason, a little bit different, it's the structural mirroring of this film. I love the structure of Jezebel, and we're going to get into that as well. I am so excited. Let me tell you why. Because I join you in voting this a sin of trust. It's not a movie I recommend to everybody. It's a movie that's grown on me. This is the third time I've seen it. And like a lot of Wyler movies, they get a little better as they go along. Um, here are my three reasons why. And normally I try to start with the positives, but I am going to start with why this is not essential, not a cinema for me. And I kind of tease it in my plot summary. But reason number one, Gone with the Wind almost totally overshadows this movie the similarities in plot and characterization and performances now i really want to underscore that almost though because gone with the wind does things a lot differently than jezebel in some respects and that may be a selling point for people if gone with the wind is not your thing or you don't want to watch a four-hour movie jezebel is an hour 40 minutes so that might actually be a selling point for some people why jezebel would be uh, the more appealing movie Second reason I vote the Sassina Trust, I find this movie to be a very mixed bag of star power and plotting. I am especially excited to talk about this point in spoilers, Max, because the mirrored structure, I think, is something I'm going to disagree with you on. So this is going to be very, very fun. My biggest selling point, why the movies were seeing to a whole bunch of people, this is a very enjoyable war on stifling social codes. The movie is about this woman who is in some ways suppressed by the manners, the um, the charming customs of the South, as she puts it. And it is a blast to see Betty Davis tackle these very head on. And um, as kind of a final point, if you are a fashion enthusiast, you are going to want to see this movie. That is not just a dig at how good the costume design is. 
story is told through dresses. The war on stifling social codes is done through fashion in this movie. I guess my final point in saying why this isn't essential, it it really is like when I see Jezebel as a Gone with the Wind fan, and that movie is certainly not without its problems, which we'll hopefully talk about in a later episode. That's the ultimate, you know, late 30s Antebellum South movie to me. And there's so many similarities between them. I always say go with Gone with the Wind. But honestly, if anybody wants to get into Weiler, wants to get into Davis, wants to just see the flip side, almost, I know these are both old Hollywood studio movies, they're major productions, but in our day and age, I think Gone with the Wind plays like the mainstream studio movie and Jezebel can almost be seen as like the indie sleeper hit. So if that's something that appeals to you, I say absolutely go for Jezebel. Um, And if that does intrigue you, where you can find it, any of the video rental platforms, you've got your Prime Videos, your YouTubes, Apple Movies, you can actually get this for just two bucks. It's half price of what you can get for a regular movie. So if anything we've said has intrigued you and you say that's worth two bucks for a look-see, I think I'd say go for it. All right, so Max, before we get diving into spoilers to back these things up and have a playfully contentious discussion, as it sounds, um, do you have any other spoiler-free things to say that might uh, hook some people on the movie or get them intrigued? First of all, I'm already excited for this episode because it does sound like it's going to be playfully contentious because you're you're taking me to task. I'm going to take you to task. I think listeners are going to enjoy that. And I think... Betty Davis and William Wyler would enjoy it too, because they are two pretty contentious <laughs> people themselves. Um, but if, if in terms of as director and actor pairings go, Wyler and Davis is pretty top tier. So if you're ever going to just want to dive into a filmography, check this film out and go down what is a short but highly stimulating and enjoyable pairing between Wyler and Davis in their films together. Could not agree more. Like I mentioned, your series, Wyler with Walsh, turned me on to the other two, and I find them all incredibly enjoyable. Um, So this is going to be good. You've also cornered us into playing a game by the end of the episode. After our contention has been had, we're going to have to decide which of us is the Davis and which of us is the Wyler. Oh, boy. All right, man. Uh, If there's nothing else, what do you say we move into spoilers for Jezebel? Let's do it. All right, Max. I don't think we're going to fight much, but we definitely have some opposing views on some things. But let's start where we, I think, are in total alignment. You say one of the reasons this is a really high recommend, maybe not an absolute must-see, but it's Betty Davis. This is an Oscar-winning performance from her. You say it's one of the finest she's done. Um, And that is a linchpin point in my point about this being a mixed bag of star power and plotting. I'm a big fan of Betty Davis in this movie. So let's let's start with her performance. Tell us what you love about it. Just to help set the stage here, Betty Davis went into this film in a uh, with all of the controversy you might like to expect. It's going to dovetail into a lot of your points, Mike, which is that Betty Davis wanted to be Scarlett O'Hara. Gone with the wind. She wanted it bad. Who, who Warner Brothers. Who didn't? Warner Brothers wasn't going to pay for it, and they weren't going to loan her out to Selznick to star in it. She fled the country over this, and Warner Brothers put an injunction on her from acting in Europe. They said, "No, you are under our contract. You get back here right now." So she lost. She had to come back, but Warner says. 
It's Betty Davis. We got to make her happy. Let's give her something that could attempt to match Gone with the Wind. And so they go with Jezebel. And frankly, as part of that conversation about what Betty Davis brings to the table, as much as Gone with the Wind is about Scarlett O'Hara, it is so broad. It is so sweeping. But Jezebel is tightly focused on Julie. And that really gives Betty Davis the obligation to carry this movie in a way that she does on her shoulders so well. She owns every scene she is a part of. And, it, you know, it's going to dovetail with my conversation about what William Wyler brings to the table, but their ability to bring out the best in each other and what Wyler did to kind of heighten her career is, um, you know, I, I'm in, just, I think we should all be incredibly thankful that they work together because it really took Betty Davis's career to the next level and really started her on this next path of the next few years where she is really considered one of the greatest actresses of all time. Yeah. And she's watching a couple of her movies this week. I mean, she, she has the, the reputation of being the firebrand, the, you know, the, the live wire. And this role seems so well fitted for her. Like you said, if she couldn't get Scarlett O'Hara, well, then this is a great runner up because she really steals the show. Nope. Nobody makes petulance as appealing as Betty Davis does. I mean, this, this character on paper is so reprehensible and you shouldn't really root for her. But I find, especially in the first half of the movie, like you can't help but just want her to plow over anybody that is not on her wavelength. Totally. I totally agree with you. I mean, you're absolutely right. She, she balances, as you say, that reprehensibility with a certain, you can't help but respect her strong-willed, you know, self-reliant nature. And yes, that's going to be kind of a crux of the problem for her character. But, you know, that's what makes her real. That's what makes the character interesting. That's what gives depth to the whole film. And it's it's all there in her performance. Mm -hmm. And I think highlights of her performance are going to come as we talk about the, the structural mirroring of the plot and, and kind of how that rolls out. So if we if we could kind of sidestep for a second, my, my point is this is a mixed bag of star power. So I kind of want to call out real quick some other people in the cast working alongside Betty Davis, because this is a film that won two acting Oscars. Betty Davis won for Best Leading Actress and Faye Bainter won for Best Supporting Actress as Aunt Bell. And I wanted your take on this. I like Aunt Bell, and I like that Faye Bainter won an Oscar for this, but I don't find this to be a particularly remarkable character. I feel she is very much pigeonholed into the gatekeeper of the old customs, you know, the, the woman who knows her place, and most of her role is just, <laughs> Julie, how could you? Your riding crop? Your red dress? That is the majority of her role outside of, I think, two scenes where she kind of gets to have a grim face. But what do you think of Faye Bainter in this movie? Yes, I, I think there is a good deal of validity to what you're saying. And I'm not one of these people who has memorized exactly everyone who was nominated that year to know how it stacks up against the other uh, nominated performances. I do think, to give her uh, some credit, that her character is so completely necessary to balance out what Betty Davis brings to the table sure, uh, and the energy that she brings to her performance. You need this performance. And it, it really, uh, the performance for Julie Betty Davis would not work without this foil 
And obviously this kind of a little bit, as you you know, a certain kind of timidity in this performance would not work without Betty Davis. And I think um, that she was very acknowledging of that in, in when she won this award. I do think she brings, especially in the second half of the film, as as you know, things are deteriorating in terms of the health of the of the whole area, um, as as you know, the yellow fever is spreading, her performance gains depth. And I think <laughs> I think delivering the line, I'm remembering a girl named a woman named Jezebel. Mm-hmm. is an incredibly difficult line to deliver and she delivers it with both the respectful edge and the absolute crushing blow that it is and for me frankly she wins the award on just the delivery of that line i i was gonna say i think that that scene and maybe the other one where she says i i think paraphrasing but something to the effect of like i think i know Julie well enough to know when she's at her meanest is when she loves the most. Yeah, those mm-hmm. are the two scenes I thought of that break out of that one note mold of just being like the the shrinking violet that somebody dares to break social custom. Um, again, I I like Faye Bainter and to to be totally forthcoming, I've seen none of the other movies that were nominated for supporting actress that year, so I have nothing to compare her to. It just seemed like. There could have been more, but you're right. She does stand up pretty firmly against Betty Davis, which is no small feat, and that's the assignment. Let me tell you who I am actively disappointed in, and you may fight me on this. This hurts me. I find Henry Fonda a bit of a letdown in this movie, and that floors me because recently on the show, I've been praising Oxbow Incident. I was totally praising his performance and choice to take that role. Even last week in my double feature watching Failsafe, I was convinced he should have been contracted to play the president in every movie. <laughs> and here he is, the romantic lead. But I mean, aside from that atrocious hairdo, which I know is a very shallow criticism, but I can't, it's so distracting. His, his Hollywood romantic image of being the, the easily put upon guy because of his good nature, I find that to be overly at odds with the temper he's supposed to display here and the idea that he and Julie ought to belong together, that the movie asks you to invest, that you want these two to be together. And I never, ever really see it. I'm never rooting for it. Yeah. Um, I think you, you've certainly touched on a, uh, a strong point, not least of which is that it's perhaps the worst hairstyle ever committed to screen. (laughs) Uh, There's no getting around that and it should never be apologized for. It's atrocious. I think it's again, it all it all comes back to Betty Davis, right? Betty Davis gives such a luminescent performance that it's hard for anyone else to kind of stand up to it, right? I mean, we we expect that quality across the board. Mm-hmm. I think what the problem perhaps lies in is that Henry Fonda is able to play the nice guy in the first half of the film, which is what's called for. And I think he does a respectable job of playing um, the more indignant guy in the second half of this film and a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more edge to him. And and that anger is there as he's faced with these circumstances. And I think he does those two things well. What he never does, and it's probably just a fault of casting in general, is that, that, yeah, they have next to no chemistry together as a romantic couple. So I think in... You know, a good deal of what he's asked to do for his performance. I think he does a great job. I just think that 
there's not a lot there in terms of what you're saying, which is like these people feel like they need to be together. Um, I, do, I don't think that that's quite there. Yeah. And another thing I was thinking, speaking of casting, I, I kept trying to make excuses for it, um, thinking, OK, Prez, Prez is a character that's established. He's he's from New Orleans. He's from the South. But he is constantly shown to be kind of an outsider because of his business dealings with the North and his his forward thinking in terms of we need to clean the city up like we need to do these things the North are doing. And he's kind of labeled an outsider and even a traitor for that. And I wondered if that's what they were going for, that Weiler purposefully casts Henry for or Henry Fonda not to fit in, but. I, I find, okay, that works to make him the outsider, but a major component of the character is that he's supposed to have at least at one point in time belonged to that world. And I don't think that it does that. I don't think you get the feeling he ever grew up here was a staple of the community. He, he plays a lot more like a guy who grew up in Boston or New York and then moved down there to help get this bank on its feet. And I think I would have bought the performance a little more with that, but all these speeches they have, you know, especially the, the one in the moonlight where julia is telling him like you trust this you trust it, it's quick and dangerous it's not easy like the north but it's a part of you and i'm just like looking at him with that hairdo with the accent that he is not really working his way around and i'm just like i don't know no that's that's totally fair mike i uh i agree with you that those lines of yeah it, it's <laughs> of all the things that are just gen- you know inherently part of him it's hard to buy that i'll give you that for sure well, so th- so that's I, I get no pleasure out of bagging on Henry Fonda, and I'm always glad to see him in a movie. He just doesn't work in this one. And, you know, listening to your guys's Weiler or Walsh on Weiler series has kind of made me expect like excellence across the board in cast. Let me tell you who I think is totally on Betty Davis's level. And it's a crime. This dude was not nominated for supporting actor. George Brent as Buck Cantrell is the MVP of this movie for me. Absolutely. Uh, he, he, I'm sure probably should have been nominated. He brings the, you know, you talked a lot about it and it's a huge part of this movie. The social boundaries in this film are such a big thing for Julie. And he is the epitome of those social boundaries and those old customs, even more than Aunt Belle. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he does an absolutely superb job of kind of, of, being that and and at the same time not being one dimensional either i think there's a lot of depth to his character uh in a way that you know another movie you've mentioned gone with the wind has a lot of characters that stand up for those values and they seem completely one dimensional in their support of those values i think buck is more than that right and and i mean if we're going to draw the parallel obviously the the love triangle is very apparent that if we are going to label these characters according to their Gone with the Wind counterparts. We have Julia's obviously Scarlet. You've got Press as Ashley, the the kind of whatever beau. You don't even know what she sees in him. But yeah, um, Buck is your, he's your Clark Gable. He's suave. He's cool. He can stand up to her. But I what I love most about him, where I think the performance shines is he's not, for most of the movie, and we'll talk about this in a second, he's not stupid enough to fall into her traps. The scene where she has him come to the side entrance to take her to the Olympus ball to make press jealous uh, with the red dress. And he just openly says like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do something that's going to harm you and make you do something you regret. And there's the great send off as she's going back in and she's kind of pouty and she's got that one last shot and she kind of flashes her eyes at him and she says, good night, Buck. And he just tips his hat and says, good night, Miss Julie. And she instantly shuts down and knows her wiles aren't going to work on him. Like it is such a good scene. I, 
across the board, I just think he's so good. He's you could almost forgive him because, to be fair, he does have some of the more reprehensible lines in the movie later at the the dinner in the second half of the movie where he is very openly critical of abolitionists and saying they should be hanged. Um, going so far as to insult Press Dillard by calling him or saying he sounds like a black abolitionist, which is a heinous line and reprehensible. So not to make excuses for him, but like you said, I found the character to be possibly the most well-developed. Um, I loved him almost every second he was on screen. That dinner conversation side, I thought he was so good and I couldn't believe he didn't get an Oscar nom for the movie. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, he He brings a lot to the table because he does... He does realize he's he's trying to be you know that she's trying to take advantage of him. That scene that you mentioned before the ball is superb, and his later scenes they are reprehensible, but they are absolutely necessary to the you know this man who's like these are my values, and we judge those values now. But he is um, uncompromising, and and that's necessary for that character. And and then of course you know as he kind of builds up to his demise, um, you understand that he's you know. He doesn't have the conviction of like, this needs to be done because I'm angry. It needs to be done because of these are the formalities and I, we're mm-hmm. going to have to duel and it's going to be a, a teaching opportunity. And that's his, it's his, you know, ultimate undoing is that he doesn't see that his, his values are so um, past their, you know, are so incongruous with the world anymore that he's, you know, leading himself to his doom. You just nailed the last things I wanted to say that, yeah, his his commitment to this social order is ironclad to a fault. And and he's not he's not an evil guy, you know, even up to that last scene dueling with Ted. And you know, his goal is he says, like, I'm not going to kill him. I'll, I'll clip him, clip his wings so he doesn't fly too high, I think, is the line. And it's, you know, all at once ridiculous, this great parody of this world where this was how arguments used to be settled, that you just take 10 steps, turn around and shoot at each other. But he he lends a validity to that system while also being this great representation of why it went down. And I think one of the most important things about that about that scene is he does not realize that this younger man has taken his lessons to heart, mm-hmm. um, that he has been this teaching influence. And he's kind of unfortunately, as we know what the history of the South will be after this movie, he's kind of sealed the South's fate by imparting those values to the next generation who think they are in a duel to the death when in fact he's, you know, he views it as a teaching opportunity. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he's even compromising his values there at the very end. But the man he's kind of imparted those values to is not, and it results in his death. And I think that's extremely poignant. It's so good. And, and maybe to to buoy up your point about why Weiler, his influence is a reason this movie's worth seeing to a bunch of people. I really love the way they shoot that duel. He's Weiler's not a guy prone to quick cuts, but I love you know a, basically a cut on every ascension from one, two, three, four, and then having those guys walk just outside the frame and see the the smoke from the pistols. And not holding back, you know, what's happened, I think is actually a, a really good way to shoot that. It's my favorite shot in the movie. It kind of just, it, pardon the pun, but it blows me away every time I watch it, where it's just like, it's so like, it's so obvious as they're walking right to the frame that you're like, oh, is he going to make them walk right to the edge so we don't see it? And of course he does, because mm-hmm. this man has a, a, a innate eye for cinematography and staging and all of these things. And it's, it's, it's just the perfect ending to that scene. So to segue, I, I've gone through the the cast. That's that's my mixed bag of of star power. Betty Davis and George Brenner at the top. We've got 
Faye Bainter kind of in the middle ground, and I'm disappointed in Henry Fonda. Before we move on, are there any other cast members stuck out to you or that you wanted to talk about? Oh, I think we have to give an immense nod to Donald Crisp as Dr. Livingston. I think mm. he is superb in this film. I mean, it's as with a surprising number of Weiler films, they are disturbingly resonant today. And uh, what would the... The mantra he's bringing to this particular film as they are in the midst of a pandemic is um, it's just, as I say, it's just like a, surprisingly poignant to, you know, our current times. But the performance is great. Donald Crisp, you know, shows up as a as, as more than one doctor in Weiler's filmography. And he's just he's great at playing that role. And uh, the way he kind of he just he has his moments throughout the film from the beginning right up until the end. And uh, and I really I really enjoy his performance. God, his interjection, that first bank board of directors scene where as soon as uh, the mayor drops the word healthy, his like, huh, it's so loud. It made me jump out of my seat. And yeah, it definitely makes you sit up and stand at attention for everything else that guy's going to say for the rest of the movie. Absolutely. I'm, absolutely. OK, so, so rolling with this, my my second point was that there's a mixed bag in terms of star power, but also plotting now. Here is where you may be able to sway me because I am on the fence and you have a much more positive spin on this. So let me just lay out my grievances and then you can start dialing me back. My issue with the plotting of the movie is that it seems to hit the reset button halfway through and you've called this a mirrored structure that I found this, I, I honestly couldn't decide if I admired this or if I found it dull and repetitive because in the first half, you have this story about a young person given to the whims of her age and being used to getting what she wants, who goes too far, sticks her nose up at society and pays the price and loses the respect of those near and dear to her. And then the second half of the movie basically repeats that same structure. She's still, after you know humbling herself for a moment and finding it, it will not work, it will not get her the man she's lost. She becomes petulant once again. She lashes out does something that goes too far that she regrets that ostracizes everyone around her. I kept going back and forth. Like, do I think this movie would, or this story would be better to suggest that first half rather than spend the first 45 minutes showing it? And I honestly don't know because there's so much I like in that first half, but it seems to me like, yes, the stakes get raised in terms of, you know, the point of no return that Julie crosses, but to me, like it really made it hard for me to sell this movie to somebody to be like, yeah, you're basically going to watch this micro story play out twice. And then there's kind of this redemptive arc at the end. So those are my grievances. Tell me why this is a plus for you, why these halves mirror each other. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this part of the conversation because I, I really do think it is a strength of this film. But to your credit and to probably lots of people, the film is criticized for what feels kind of like um, a film divided into sequences and rather than a necessarily a cohesive flowing story. And it has that repetitive quality. I think, however, that Weiler's strength, right, is he is going to probe at his characters and he is going to um, get up right you know we're going to get close to them we're going to understand their faults we're going to understand their strengths he is not going to apologize for them he's not going to he's not going to necessarily make it easy for us to feel a certain way about them um over the course of this film and and or any film but in this film as well and i love the structure of this film because it's not just that 
it's a film of kind of, as you put it, of resetting and, and you know, because it's easy to feel that way. We're going to do much of the same thing, but it's so specific that we are going to have scenes that speak to each other so closely. They are, they are a mirror of each other. So I think the best way, Mike, would be to just talk about a few select scenes with you. Right. And we can talk about those scenes, but just talking about what I think it brings to the table on each of those cases, as well as the film as a whole. Okay, where are we going? Well, let's start off here with two parties thrown in Julie's honor. The first, you mentioned, she's late to it. She comes in um, as full of herself as possible, coming in on her writing habit, one of the great entrances um, in film. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And again, just talking about what Betty Davis and Weiler bring to the table. Weiler had her do 30, 40 takes of this entrance where she... Uh, is able to bring her riding crop over her shoulder. And it's, I mean, it's such a wonderful entrance. And Betty Davis, I mean, we think of this woman as as someone very confident in her craft that you would think that she, surely she would reject the idea of doing a scene 30 times. But she realized when she watches those rushes that Weiler brought something out of her in take 40 when she was exhausted and getting irritated that really did make the scene feel more authentic. So, I mean, again, it just speaks to their collaboration and her understanding of that she was becoming a better actress, thanks to Weiler. I love that stuff. But she comes into this scene. She is self-confident. She dominates the space, right? She walks in here. And at the same time, and this is what really kind of goes hand in hand with my second point about what Weiler brings to the table, is that in any scene with... Julie with Betty Davis, he is able to have her dominate the space and also feel imprisoned in it. So she comes into that opening party and she's making the rounds, but, and she's all eyes are on her, but at the same time, she is enclosed. She's claustrophobic. She is, we, we start to feel, we can already get glimpses of the cracks of, of a little bit of insecurity. And that the way that scene then contrasts with the opening party at Halcyon and she's there completely genuinely humbling herself before Prez saying, I am sorry, I acted poorly. It's she's not just playing a game with him at this point to just win him back over. She is completely sincere. And of course, it mirrors beautifully something else, which is that she's finally now wearing this white dress instead of the red dress. So right. she has abandoned the red. She is there in the white. She is completely humble. She is completely insecure. Where do these flowers go? I can't decide this table, that table, you know, is, is the, are, are the mint juleps going to be correctly iced? She's completely insecure. So I love the way those two scenes start off the two halves of this movie, because it really, I think, sets the mood for where those characters are. What do you think, Mike? What, what, how do you feel about those two party scenes? Well, well, to quick plug what I had said earlier about, you know, this being a a fashion fanatic stream, like you, you just made my point that so much of the story is told through those types of dresses, you know, the, the, the body red dress and the riding habit, as opposed to the, the virginal white lace dress that's uh, an outward sign of humility. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I like that element to it. I, I like the first part of this I guess what I'm calling the post reset where what has gone before has direct bearing on the plot that 
there's there's a scene early on that I love in Betty Davis's performance as they're going to pick up press for the dress fitting and as she sends T-Bat in to get him, she's talking with Aunt Bell, and Aunt Bell is chastising her, saying, you are pushing him too hard, you're going to push him away. And they mentioned the last time, because they've been engaged before, and it broke off because she loved that horse so much. And Aunt Bell mentions, you broke your collarbone and your engagements at the same time. And Betty Davis just gives her like that smug smile as she's still twirling the parasol, and she goes, and they both mended, so I was right. <laughs> so it is great to see that line come up into the plot, that after the incident at the Olympus Ball with the red dress, that her surety that there's nothing she could do that would push him away that that actually breaks down so i like this act of coming forward and being humble and wanting to apologize that's that's a key point of why davis is so good in the movie is that she sells the petulance and the self-obsession as well as this desperation and this saying i'm so sorry like i i was wrong and you know i don't i feel icky saying that because i don't it's always weird to say like oh a woman should humble herself before a man in this movie but you know she was she was down downright out out of line i would say with how far she was pushing him um but again it's it's what comes after that it's after she meets amy and she realizes he's married and she gets it into her head she can break this marriage up i honestly i'm not seeing like where the logic is that she starts goading buck into insulting press and his wife and you know, calling him a traitor. I, I don't know where her head is at in terms of how that helps drive him back into her arms. And maybe that's the point. Maybe it's just in a moment of fury and passion. She, like you said, there was so much set up to this party, the flowers, the juleps that she, you know, was going to get him back. And for that to come crashing down. Yeah. Maybe she makes a rash decision that doesn't make sense, but it, it it's everything that follows after that, that I'm not so in line with in terms of mirroring, just because it's, history repeating itself it's this character who hasn't learned this lesson and now it's going to actually cost somebody their life this time absolutely and so let's take this mirroring a little bit further because we do need that time where she is repeating her past mistakes and you're absolutely right and so let's take this scene mirroring and keep it going right you mentioned the great scene when she goes to the bank and finally goes in and confronts him with her passive aggressive um, flippancy about him being, you know, at this, what is clearly a, a super important meeting and she's totally in the wrong. And likewise, we have the scene where she is trying to convince him out in the, in the moonlight. And both of these things fail, except the first time she's moderately successful and that he feels quite guilty about it. The second time the charms are wearing off. And so she feels much like she kind of failed the first time. And she ends up wearing this dress, this red dress in a spectacular failure of trying to one up him she's going to do the exact same thing and she does that with buck right and she obviously comes to regret wearing that red dress and she's going to come to regret regret um having you know buck pursue her we've got these two dinners that happen at halcyon which are you know they're both in the second half of the film but they mirror each other quite nicely the first is this um fairly boisterous conversation about the strengths of the south and the second, things are dire. We see this evolution and it's just downward. It's going down and down and down. Then you've got interesting parallels. And again, it's not one of the things I love about Weiler is he's never going to hit his parallels. He's never going to hit his moments like a nail on the head where you just you feel like he's overdoing it. I think he brings an immense subtlety and sophistication to his work. So for a prime example of that, 
the dance sequence where she wears this red dress. I mean, what a sequence. The staging of it as they begin to dance and the crowd just empties around them. My favorite shot. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. And we get everything, right? We get her immense regret and embarrassment. We get his both, I'm going to prove you wrong on all levels. I'm not a coward, but I also am going to make you endure this. Uh, I'm not a pushover either, but either to the people around me or to you. It's, I mean, it's such a wonderful sequence. But those people, you know, giving, you know, trying to get as far away from them as possible on the dance floor, right? I mean, this point in the, the film, it's all about the moral superiority of these old values. You know, this, how dare you wear a red dress when you're not a, a married woman? And then we get a scene later in the film, which seems perhaps totally disconnected, but it's when press falls ill in the bar and the way everyone retreats back mm. and creates, you know, this semicircle around as far away from him as possible. It is the exact same kind of staging and camera work that we see in that dance scene. And we expose the hypocrisy of it all. These people have no moral authority, no moral superiority. They can't even help one of their own when he's sick. They are per perfectly prepared to abandon a fallen comrade when it suits them. So everything that they supposedly stood on before is worth nothing at this point in the film. So I love the way those two scenes speak to each other. And then to your point, Julie does need to learn her lesson. So she goes too far. It ends in Buck's death, obviously, it's, which is um, incredibly sad, incredibly touching scenes. We get the, the wonderful line delivery of, um, I'm a re remembering a woman named Jezebel, which as I, you know, we talked about already is just a wonderful delivery of that line. And it is a turning point in this film. So it brings me then to the two scenes that are in her bedroom back in Atlanta. And the first is which when he comes up to confront her and they have the whole conversation about the red dress and she's really her most, uh, she's at her most um, selfish at this mm -hmm. point in the film. I'm going to wear this red dress and she's kind of goading him and daring him to do anything about it. And then in the second half of the film, after this change has taken place, we have her completely selfless taking care of press while he's sick in her room. In that same space, she is literally potentially giving her life for his and willing to do anything. So I love the way those two scenes speak to each other. And then, of course, when a, a wonderful scene as well that we closes out the first half of the film as Julie is in conversation with her aunt and she's saying, go after him. You've taken it too far. And she just refuses. She is too proud to go out that door and say, I'm sorry. And then at the second half of the film, it's a conversation on the stairs. Now it's not Julie at the top of the stairs in the, in the position of authority. She's down at the bottom and she's begging Amy to say, I need to go with him. Not because I love him, we're going to get married or any of those things. It's the only way to keep this man alive. Mm -hmm. Those scenes, I mean, Weiler loves a staircase and I love how those two scenes on those two staircases speak to each other. It's, it's you know, again, it's just recalling it. The scenes aren't so blatantly related that you say, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. But I think there's just, it, it recalls those earlier scenes. It adds depth to these characters. And then finally, just the, the bookending of the whole film, her entrance on, a, on that horse at the beginning of this film is as 
as confident as can possibly be. And she exit this, exits this film on a horse carriage, and it is as dignified as she could possibly be at that film as she is going off to this island to care for Prez. Um, and it's, it's that it's Weiler's ability to bookend the film, to structure the film around these scenes that speak to each other, but in different ways that to me, I think adds an incredible depth and sophistication to the film. Yeah. And even the duality of like the, the very opening shot is a, you know, a great tracking shot down this main street of New Orleans as it's this bustling station of commerce is this is a city that's alive and vibrant. And the end is, you know, a, almost a painting out of the end of the world there's bucket there's tar barrels on fire in the streets there's cannons there's people wrapped in shawls dying of plague like it's a very good pairing between like life and death as you know it relates to the setting that the movie's taking place in as well totally absolutely well put yeah i i I think ultimately kind of the those are beautiful dualities and reflections of each other you've pointed out and some of which i hadn't even considered like the uh Henry Fonda passing out in the hotel lobby is a great one. I I think that still nets this in a cine trust category for me because that minuteness is you know given to cinephiles and obsessives who are fascinated with the structuralism of how a movie is put together and not necessarily the speaking directly to the heart that most essential movies I think will get at. But that was incredibly well said, man. I'm I'm floored. Yeah, I mean, I I think. I think that's one of the great things that Weiler brings to the table, though, across his filmography. His films, um, all great films get better, I think, on, on repeated viewings. But I think Weiler's films really go, grow, excuse me, on repeated viewings where you say, you, I, I, I constantly find any Weiler film I watch that um, I, I really enjoyed it. But it's going to take me a few rewatches to really pick apart why did I like it so much? Why did that film speak to me? It's not always immediately obvious. And I think those kind of things that, um, you know, the structuring of a film is, is a prime example of that. And you don't pick that up necessarily on a first viewing, but you say, perhaps you say, not everybody says that, huh, I, I enjoyed the pacing of the film or I just enjoyed the movie. And I think Weiler's films, just, they just really lend themselves to those rewatches, to, to really delving into it. And I don't think they ever really get boring on those repeat viewings. No, they, they do become more enriching. And I, I can back that up because from personal experience, that's, that's my experience. I, I, the Best Years of Our Lives is the only William Weiler movie I liked upon first viewing. This one I downright hated first time. And uh, like I said, it's my third time watching it. And now I really, really enjoy it. It's not quite a must-see for me, but I admire so much about it. And same for movies like Wuthering Heights and even Roman Holiday, which we talked about very, like episode six. And that Cine trusted. And I keep going back to it in my head thinking, was I too rough on Roman Holiday? Was I being too nitpicky? Um, yeah, he's he's a consummate craftsman. And I want to call out touting his praises the scene you talked about that the olympus ball scene is incredible and i don't feel it has any right to be that good because on if you take a step back and i'll use this to tie in how i love this movie as a war on these stifling social codes it's it's really not a high stakes gambit in terms of you know the modern day viewer it's you're wearing the quote-unquote wrong color of dress to a ball but 
like you'd mentioned, like the claustrophobia of that scene, the performances, like you feel the awkwardness, you can feel the air going out of that place as press and Julie walk onto the floor. And, and again, my favorite shot is it pulls back and just, you just see people deserting the dance floor. He really sells that moment as a big deal to this world of manners and codes and what you're expected to do where on paper, I think the idea is kind of laughable to a modern day audience member. So that's, that's props to him for selling that. It's, it's the key point of, you know, this movie being an enjoyable attack on this code of manners that the movie I think kind of goes both ways on I think it romanticizes it to a level but also is quick to point out kind of the sillier aspects of it we talked about with the the ball and the dress and the, the dueling system and things like that I guess talking big picture so one of my points maybe the point this isn't a must see for me is because Gone with the Wind just overshadows it so much and i i made sure to point out i'm putting an almost there because i think there are things jezebel does that gone with the wind doesn't but i mean when you when you look back and i i got a checklist going and kind of stepped off it but i mean plot wise you know these are both movies about a headstrong southern belle pursuing a man she can't have at the expense of all others while the old south is crashing down around her to a lesser extent than gone with the wind but still there is a romanticism for this era i mean the plantation is called halcyon for goodness sake which i looked up and it means it denotes a period of time in the past that was very idyllically happy and peaceful and you know we've got that scene of all the slaves coming around to sing for her there's a social taboo at a grand ball both movies have scenes where the heroine makes this decision that makes everyone gasp at the big ball um you got music by max steiner you've got this ending with an uncertain future for our hero um, so the big question I wanted to ask myself and that I'll pose to you is what does Jezebel do that Gone with the Wind doesn't that is a plus? Because I think a lot of you know us would maybe say, well, Gone with the Wind is superior. It's a beautiful Technicolor uh, movie and it's this big grand epic. Like you said, it's it's so almost outside of the story that Jezebel is very focused if it's a movie about this social system, like it at least focuses on that. Um, but I'll pose the question to you. What does this movie do that Gone with the Wind doesn't that you feel is a positive that actually trumps Gone with the Wind? Well, isn't that the question? And and this is these two movies can't help but be in dialogue with each other. Obviously, they were quite literally competing against each other. As I as I said at the beginning of the episode, Warner Brothers, you know, really attempted to get this movie out first to try and kind of cut the momentum for Gone with the Wind. That was a very clearly like a business motivation. Um but, and I think rightfully so, a lot of people, you know, Gone with the Wind is often celebrated as one of the, the greatest cinematic movies, you know, of all time. Um, and I think that is its strength, right? It is, to me, it is cinematic. It is technicolor. It is deep, hugely impressive on all those fronts. Weiler is a character uh, director who I think has a different set of priorities. And one might speak to you more than the other. So. First of all, Weiler is a huge adapter of whether it's books, but a lot of times plays. Mm -hmm. Not that Gone with the Wind obviously isn't an adaptation as well, but he's very concerned with how do I adapt something that perhaps was on the stage in a cinematic way that, that brings, it still has that theatrical legacy, 
but also feels uniquely filmic. And I think he does a great job of that across his work. Um, but because of that, his movies are, um, they're more intimate. And I think his, his, you know, across the board, his movies are also something you've already touched on. They're, they're hugely focused on individual characters, but how those individual characters kind of butt up against their societal norms of their time and how those characters can kind of get almost consumed by whatever the historical moment they're found themselves in. And, and I think those th things, when you look at it on that level, characters, social conventions, historical time period, obviously both Gone, the, Gone with the Wind and Jezebel have those things. And with, with the time frame, you know, as you said, this movie is you know, less than half the length of, of Gone with the Wind. I think we get a more succinct, um, nuanced insight into the character of Julie in an hour and 45 minutes than we do into Scarlett O'Hara in mm -hmm. four hours. Mm -hmm. I think that the film more poignantly points to the social codes fading um, at, at that time and how, those, how all of these, both these individuals and those codes are wrapped up in their historical moment. I think Weiler brings more nuance more depth, more sophistication to probing at those issues in his film than Gone with the Wind does. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's more, and so in that sense, it's more focused and it's, it's just, it more keenly gets to the point. And that point is, I think, more thought-provoking in Jezebel than it is in Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. But there's plenty of, of you know, counterpoints that are going to point you in the other direction as well. Well, you know, and as much as I think Gone with the Wind is a superior movie, like I, I am prone to agree with you. I, I know I, I know Gone with the Wind has characters I enjoy more, but in terms of like you saying more intimate, getting to know these people and understanding their motivations, like the theatrical bent of this movie of you know the very few locations and being adapted from a stage play lends itself to that, and that's Weiler's thing. You've your your series has kind of convinced me that I might replace William Weiler. Um, as like the ultimate adapter of stage for me, it used to be Sidney Lumet, but now I'm like, oh, he, he's done quite a bit, and I gotta say, the guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> um, one one kind of similarity and then difference I was picking up on, and one thing even before I knew Jezebel existed as a movie, I always kind of had this reading of Gone with the Wind that, as as petulant and petty as Scarlet is, you you kind of get the feeling in that story that like the entire decline of the South is like only to humble this one woman that she brings on this like act of God, the civil war that ruins the world around her just so she can get her comeuppance. And that's kind of, you know, Jezebel kind of has that same feel, but they, they have two different approaches that in Gone with the Wind, it's a man-made construction of the civil war, which is paid lip service to at that dinner scene. But the war has not even started in Jezebel. This is, this is an act of God. It's a, a plague of, of yellow fever. And and thinking about that, I noticed that maybe one thing that we can give to Jezebel is Gone with the Wind, as much as I like that movie, but I mean, no movie has ever shot itself in the foot as hard as that movie does with its opening crawl about the romanticism of the era right, yeah. master and like, holy crap. But <laughs> anyways, Gone with the Wind paints the fall of this way of life as a bad thing, as, as a cry and shame. And I think Jezebel paints the same decline of the same way of life as actually kind of a good thing. 
um, which we've talked about already with the character of Buck and his strict adherence to these codes of chivalry that you know lead to lead to bloodshed and things like that, but also Julie's own forsaking of her own ways, which granted were not totally in line with the the norms of the time, but her her sacrifice, her willingness to go with press also defies social conventions. It should have been his wife, but she does that, you know, for the greater good. And we're left to wonder if they'll ever make it off that island. If I I don't like their odds, if there's also people with leprosy (laughs) over there, but that was just kind of an interesting thing. Like, Oh, Jezebel paints this as it's maybe a good thing. This way of life died out where gone with the wind is totally like, ah, that's too bad. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a very astute point. I think, and Weiler being Weiler, He's not going to take a moral stand about it in the sense that um, to say necessarily, oh, this is the good thing, that this was inevitable because your way of thinking was it was not progressive enough. You did not realize that other people were taking advantage of machines and that equality could benefit a society or that health standards could benefit the society. And he's just going to say this. I mean, this is your fault, just like Buck dying in a duel yeah. is his fault. Um, and and I think that I think that that's a more um, stimulating conclusion mm-hmm. uh, than where Gone with the Wind takes us. And I just there's a few scenes that you've already touched on and I think are worth revisiting to really highlight the differences of the two movies and, and both have their pros and their cons and they're both enjoyable movies. That's okay. Right. Like the, the dialogue at the end of the day can be that I love Jezebel and I enjoy gone with the wind as well for what they each do well. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned earlier, Buck Cantrell as, as kind of, you know, evoking a certain Rhett Butler quality. And what I think, again, what we've talked about is that this film is more condensed is that Buck Cantrell evokes both a certain Rhett Butler quality, but he also kind of brings in the whole Frank Kennedy uh, mm-hmm. character. Yeah, yeah. And Press is to that guy? Ashley, but he's also Rhett Butler, and he's not afraid to put her in her place when need be either. And Gone with the Wind is so sweeping, and it's so huge that you have a character who denotes entirely kind of each point of view and it adds i think perhaps a little less depth versus when you have a character who can be part rhett butler part frank kennedy and another one who can be part ashley but also part rhett butler that's when you really start having characters coming into interesting conflict with each other that's a good point maybe i'm a little too harsh on henry fonda His, his his what he stands for in the movie is so good and and to give more credit to Betty Davis again for someone who can make someone who's terrible seem appealing, you know, in terms of this war on social codes that it's admirable in these early moments that she's not, she doesn't wilt down and just say like, Oh, that's the man's world. Like she'll march right into the bank and everyone's afraid of her. Like there's something really refreshing about that. But at the same time, you know, you feel you're both for her and against her because you you see into that meeting and it's not a meeting where guys are just chomping on cigars and talking about nothing like press is pleading the case for a railroad to save the city's way of life he's saying if we don't do this like we will be overtaken by the north and so her her petulance of like well you you're not going to come watch my dress 
fitting. It's like, do you know what he's doing? <laughs> he's trying to save the whole town. Like I, I'm all for like him keeping his promise and stuff, but bigger stakes here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't remember what got me off. I think get to give, to give Henry Fonda more credit. Cause I think that's my favorite scene of his in the movie is him making that case again, just because the, the chemistry just isn't there in his, his attitude thinking of, or not his attitude, his um, his romantic image in Hollywood. I'm thinking specifically of movies like The Lady Eve, that it is fun to watch Henry Fonda be the guy in a relationship with a really strong woman where he has no cards to play. Like he is totally there to be acted upon and he's good natured. And I feel maybe the movie, I mean, it would it would have gone into too comedic a tone. So I'm not saying the movie should have done that, but I think it's maybe miscasting for him because I just can't see him being the Rhett Butler-esque guy. Yeah. I, I think the only time he does pull it off is the Olympus Ball where he doesn't say anything, where he has just total commitment to this is the choice you made. You want to go to the ball in the red dress. And Julie insinuates, the, or she makes the comment that she appeals to his manhood, his machismo, that she says, like, are you afraid I'd get insulted and you would have to defend me? But, you know, he just goes through that whole ball stone face and just with that look of like, well, this is what you wanted. So we're going to commit to the decision you made. You're going to be held accountable for this. I feel that's the only time he pulls off like a Rhett Butler-esque, you know, he is it's, on uh, her level. Yeah, I mean, it's the equivalent scene of Rhett Butler making Scarlet go uh, to Ashley's home, uh, to Melanie's home, yeah. um, after, after they've had their kind of, you know, controversial moment. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it, that's a very strong scene. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the dance scene. It's such a pivotal scene. I think it's also a scene that highlights the differences of these movies. As you said, quite rightly, both films have dance scenes that qua- cause quite the stir. Um, and I think how they go about it, highlights the differences of what you can get out of each movie the dance scene in gone with the wind is um it is the color is on display right as much as color is actually the the central point of controversy in jezebel obviously obviously it's a black and white film you know gone with the wind we've got the color we've got the big um sweeping fluid beautiful dance scene and so it's it's a feast for the eyes it's absolutely gorgeous to watch it's gorgeous to listen to as that max steiner music plays it's really a lot of fun and you get that kind of jaw-dropping moment weiler he's got a different touch it's a black and white film he's going to rely completely on staging on the mise-en-scene he's going to know when to pull his camera out when to push it in so that you can get both the close-ups and that wonderful staging that is your favorite shot in the film. So, you know, you get what I think is, you know, it's easy to say that Gone with the Wind is the more cinematic because it's bigger and more colorful. But at the same time, God, Weiler knows exactly which tools to use in a given scene to really highlight it. The same example goes for what is two of my favorite scenes in both films and and that's really saying something which is obviously the famous scene gone with the wind scarlet going to the train depot and seeing the absolute mass of death and uh you know injured men all around her and there we have that the music is playing again max steiner uh, max steiner brings his a plus game to gone with the wind in a way he does not with jezebel we'll just say that right away but um, the way that that camera pulls out and we just have the scope of death and you say, wow. And then you'll have the scenes that you also, again, mentioned, Mike, which is 
Weiler having all those carts going through the city and it's tight and it's claustrophobic, but that same sense of scale and scope of death is there. And I think it's, it speaks to what each film is doing. One feels claustrophobic, like you can't even breathe. You're breathing in the tar from the, that they're burning and it's terrifying. And then you have the, the Gone with the Wind version and it's terrifying. And they're totally different, but at the same time, they're doing the exact same thing. And, you know, to each his own. Yeah, they they really do pair off quite well with each other. And and again, to speak to you know all the great points you've made and, and the craft of Weiler, this is a movie the first time I watched it, absolutely hated it. Could not see it as anything other than a, a cheap cash in to gone with the wind you know this this was ants to a bug's life you know in, in my mind and upon rewatches and, and analysis and appreciation for performances like the movie gets better it's gone from what i would have been an easy cinebus the first time i saw it to now like pushing towards the ceiling of trust, trying to make cinemas and getting close uh but not quite making it there i think there's a lot to enjoy out of it and i don't think it solely exists in the shadow of gone with the wind absolutely um, which I feel kind of wraps up all the points I've wanted to make about the movie. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? No, I'm excited to talk about our uh, double feature suggestions. Let's do it. We've we've been talking about other movies with this one, but let's roll into the official format of the show. So if um, you were going to throw together a double feature where you got Jezebel on one half of it, what are you throwing in on the other half? Well, I think we've talked enough about Gone with the Wind that people will either feel the need to compare these movies and watch them together or not. So I'm not going to make that my suggestion, though I do think they would make a, a great pairing. And, you know, because I'm doing this Weiler with Walsh series over on Classic Movie Musts, I'm, I'm going to pick another Weiler. And, you know, I, I was debating because the next episode of our Weiler show is actually on Weathering Heights, which was next up in Weiler's filmography. And I think that those two films pair interestingly be, just because of something we've talked about, which is women coming up against the boundaries of their lives and dealing with them in different ways and dealing with those struggles. But I can never get away from the little foxes. I love the little foxes. And the reason I'm going to pick the little foxes, which is obviously another Weiler and Betty Davis pairing, I think it's, you know, perhaps the, the absolute, um, epitome of their work together. It's, it's a, a wonderful film. It's again, set in a very similar time frame, And, but the reason I'm going to pick it is because of something I've been giving a lot of thought to lately that we can be a little harsh, I think on Julie and Jezebel for her, uh, kind of reprehensible moments. We do, you know, we, we think of them as these reprehensible moments and in the little foxes, it's easy to think of Betty Davis's character as uh, Regina as an out and out villain. Um, oh, yeah. You know, she she is brutal in that film. But the reason I'm going to pair these two movies is because I think at the same time we can be a little harsh, which is that these women are born into a time where they have no rights. They are treated like second class citizens to the men in their lives. They are condescended to any number of things. And I think in both these cases, you just have women trying to find their own agency, trying desperately to fight that system to say, no, I'm going to play by my own rules. And 
let's not get around the fact that in both cases we have, you know, men and male led institutions making these films that make us feel that these women are the villains, perhaps, of their stories when, in fact, yes, they do horrible things, but they we, we, we kind of discount the society they are part of that just pushes them down and gives them none of that agency that they desire. And, you know, it was women like Julie and Regina that ultimately paved the way for a certain amount of, uh, of equality that was absolutely desperately needed. And so maybe we're a little harsh on these women. I love, like, I opened the episode saying I'm eternally grateful for this Weiler series you're running on Classic Movie Must, if only that it introduced me to this movie. Little Foxes is a movie that never, ever would have been on my radar. Um, But because of your show, I watched it, and holy crap, what a great movie. I I even spoke earlier about how this series has kind of come to make me expect greatness across the board in the casting, and this was specifically the movie I was thinking of. Not only is Betty Davis great, but all of the supporting cast, all the fat Teresa Wright, and I'm forgetting the actor's name, but um, the the woman who plays Birdie, who I know was Oscar nominated, and I was like, that's a that's a winner right there for me. Um, seriously, blew me away. The only aside from Best Years of Our Lives, the only other Weiler movie that I saw and immediate when it ended, I immediately was like, I loved that. That was a great movie. Yeah, it's it's a very special film. I really do think it's one of his best ever. Um, and and he's a man who's directed a lot of really wonderful films. So yeah. that's saying something. Yeah, and from a settings perspective, also interesting because Jezebel ends before the Civil War has even begun, and the Little Foxes, also taking place in the South, picks up after it's over. And there is a lot said in uh, the first act of that movie about how the family's way of life has persevered in light of economic realities and um what's the word accumulations that they've had to make. And that, that also I think is a, a really interesting pairing. Yeah. I love, uh, again, I love this. Yeah. The way, the way Weiler is going to situate his individuals in their moment of history is always, um, is always very thought provoking. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great pick. And I, I could not recommend it more to everybody. I just watched little foxes on Max's recommendation from his show this week. And it seriously blew me away. So that's an amazing pick. As usual, it's so good, I'm almost embarrassed to say mine, but I knew going in that mine was going to be very loosely fitting, but my double feature recommendation is Now Voyager, and the reason I had selected it was I'd never seen Now Voyager, I'd heard a lot about Now Voyager, I wanted to watch Now Voyager, um, but looking at it, there's, there is a connection, you know, Now Voyager stars Betty Davis, it's a movie about a woman who is suppressed by her social standing, she belongs to this you know, very affluent Boston family who's been kind of locked in by a domineering mother. Um, so in very different ways, these are movies about women trying to break out of those molds that society puts on them. But it's also kind of a nice mirror image because if we're talking about Jezebel as a, and even Little Foxes as a movie that shows that Betty Davis really knows how to play a monster, I really like now Voyager as showing she's excellent at portraying a very tender person as well there's a lot of emotional vulnerability in now voyager i really really enjoyed it It was a first time watch for me and i stick by it as being a pretty good pairing with jezebel if if your next week listener involves you watching jezebel the little foxes and then now voyager you're gonna have a great week yeah agreed um all of which you can now hear mr max burrell talk about because you've heard him talk about jezebel 
There is, of course, this classic movie must episode on the little foxes. There is also a very in-depth one analyzing a few key scenes of now Voyager. So you can go check those out. They're all excellent episodes. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, no problem, man. That is So that is my plug to say we are winding down the episode here. So we have had our say on Jezebel. It is now up to all of you to decide if this movie is going to make the list of essential cinema. So again, to do that, you're going to want to make sure you're following us at Cinemus on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, because this Friday we are going to throw some polls out where you all will decide, does it belong in Cinetrust category, as Max and I say, or does it deserve to go higher or lower, up to the Cinemus, down to the Cinebus? You guys are going to cast your votes this Friday, so make sure you are following us. And of course, make sure you're following Classic Movie Must. Max's show is incredible. I've said it before. I'll say it again and again and again. One of the best movie podcasts out there now, very gratefully back in free podcast feeds. So Max, thank you for all you do for the world of film criticism and movie podcasting. And thank you so much for coming on to this show. Likewise to you, Mike. Love coming on your show. Love having these talks with you. Uh, of course, listeners can find lots of Mike Emmel uh, co-hosted podcasts of classic movie musts. Uh, so by all means, uh, if, you, if you like one show, you'll like them both. Absolutely. I could not recommend it more. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Um, our next episode, I cannot promise, is actually going to drop next week. We're having some scheduling snafus, but the next time you tune into Cinemust, you can rest assured that we're going to be going dark, talking about our very first Orson Welles movie on the show. We are going to welcome back Anthony Badger to discuss the noir classic Touch of Evil. So whenever that episode drops out, that promises to be an excellent conversation. And with that, I will say we are done here. Max, one last time, thank you so much. Any final words you'd like to say? I'm remembering a woman named Jezebel. <laughs>